Hello, you're listening to Wine Blast. I'm Susie Barry, and for this episode, my husband and fellow master of wine, Peter Richards, has been breaking into the Fort Knox of wine and has lived to tell the tale. Here I am, as I live and breathe. It's you are me. indeed. It's the real me. And, and boy, what tales I have. Uh, though perhaps I should reassure listeners of a more uh, nervous disposition that you are not going to be accessories to a crime. Uh, I was actually allowed in. Uh, so it's more a kind of peek behind the scenes than an active sort of smash and grab, if you like. Uh, well, it must have been tempting, though, no? I mean, sneaking off with the odd wine treasure tucked under your coat? <sighs> Very tempting. Uh, oh, my word, it was tempting. You know, a parallel <laughs> career as a gentleman thief, you know, briefly beckoned. These sort of stellar names of wine just swam before my eyes. But, you know, then these words rang in my head. I get searched rigorously on the way out. I test the security company that I certainly will grade their service to us based on how well they search me. So that's Vincent O'Brien, who's the managing director of Octavian Wine Services. And if he's the boss and he gets searched, you know, I had no hope. You know, me wandering out, imagine saying, me in a wine cellar with over a billion pounds of wine. With my reputation, you know, I'd been locked up in the tower before you could say pre-phylloxera claret. <laughs> <laughs> OK, but you did get to taste some pretty good stuff while you were there, didn't you? Let's be honest. Yeah, it's, it's a fair cop. You know, we, we did enjoy some very fine wine as part of this. It was just a fascinating experience all around, really. So, you know, if you want to find out what Cheval Blanc 1949 really tastes like, listen on. And the Krug 96 and the Dom Perignon. <laughs> You're trying to tell us this wasn't a jolly, aren't you? <laughs> I am. I'm trying to maintain that. I wonder if anyone's out there buying this. Uh, write me a postcard if you are. Mm-hmm, and my mm-hmm. wife clearly is not. Uh, we are <laughs> going to touch on some Costury, uh, Comte Lafon, Fourier, Clos Saint-Jacques and a bit of Mouton. Oh. Cheeky bit of Mouton as well. I, I think uh, it's a good thing I'm not the jealous type, isn't it? Or you could have forgotten Fort Knox for wine. You'd definitely have been locked out of our house, wouldn't you? <laughs> Back to the doghouse. me. Again. Again. Moving yeah. on. Moving on. Anyway. <laughs> and moving on. And before we get started, we did just want to mention something else, didn't we? We wanted to share some exciting news. You're going to have to forgive us for blowing our own trumpets here, but we can't help it because we've literally just seen our faces splashed all over the Radio Times. One of Britain's biggest selling yeah. magazines where Wine Blast is da, 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 show of the week. Show of the week. They're calling us unfailingly perky and wine's answer to Richard and Judy. <laughs> that was that was that was fun to see actually, you know. So know. thank you uh, David Hepworth and the Radio Times team for that. Are we perky? Yeah. Oh, okay. Hell yeah. I, I I'm not sure I really know what perky means. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, all I'd say is, you know, we certainly definitely don't record on a hangover. Never, 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 uh, never, never. And preferably we've always got some bubbles within reach. Listen, perky's good. I'll take perky, you know. Okay. I mean, I don't think I've been called perky for a very long time, um, you know, and I'm very happy with it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Radio Times it. and David. Um, and of course, we should extend a very warm welcome to any new listeners joining as a result of this article or mm. any, or for any other reason, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, you are all very welcome. Everyone, everyone is welcome here. Yeah, this shows for everyone. Um, so please do join in, subscribe, you know, leave us a rating and a comment. Uh, don't be shy. Perhaps you could rate our perkiness. <laughs> 
I don't know. I'm intrigued. Anyway, maybe we should just get on with the I show. I think maybe not. And stop Let's talking not ask about for that. Let's... Anyway, quite right. Uh, yeah. So in this episode, um, we are going to go behind the scenes at Octavian Wine Services, specifically their Corsham Cellar, which is a former limestone mine mm. and then munitions dump operated by the Ministry of Defence or MOD during the Second World War. Nowadays, it's a site where an astonishing amount of the world's finest wines mature quietly a hundred feet beneath the Wiltshire chalk. It's a quite unique facility and one of the largest of its kind in the world. Yeah, which is why um, when we got an invitation to visit, um, we couldn't say no. Well, more specifically, I couldn't. I was say thinking no. it's, it wasn't we; it was it was you, wasn't <laughs> well, the it? The invitation was to both of us. But it I was, was the one but who you got the you got the, 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 the long straw there, didn't you? Um, and we wanted to take you guys along with us, of course. Um, and it's a bit of an odd place, I'll be honest. You know, you catch a train to the middle of nowhere, then get a taxi to even more middle of nowhere, and it, a taxi turfs you out at a frightening set of gates with guards. Um, and then there's not much to see, really. Well, because I suppose it's all underground, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I was expecting. Maybe a circus above ground, maybe something. I would think they probably Statues. try and hide their door, don't they? There's not much to see. Exactly. There's not much to see above ground. You know, there's some cows in the distance, you know, the odd building. And and as far as I remember, the odd sort of missile or rather sort of artillery shell rusting away. You know, there, there is a sort of sense of a military facility, mm. you know, which, you know, of course, as you say, it was at one time. But but what about, when, when, what about when, you, when you do then get inside? I presume that all yeah. changes. Yeah, yeah. That's when it really comes to life. You know, up top, there's not that much, to be honest. You know, there's areas where wine cases are unloaded and lorries dump stuff and whatnot and they, they process. But even just seeing those wine cases right there gets you salivated, gets you mm. sort of started. Uh, but then you kind of see the, this sort of tunnel arching down into the bowels of the earth and, and and this sort of clunky old train or funicular i don't know what it is or how you describe it but it ferries the wines up and down um and you realize you kind of need to take the plunge and really head down uh into these 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 depths to find the real treasures and i mean didn't you though before that have a, a slightly comedy safety brief briefing <laughs> yeah, before you went down yeah i'd forgotten about that we did we were we were instructed how to use a special breathing device you know a bit like a gas mask and then we had to carry it on our person at all times so why you is know, this fear that? of i don't know what what what, what was it for well it's sort of it's apparently the facility is still classified as a mine so it has um. to follow all the rules and regulations of a mine. Uh, and also if there's a fire, fire engines won't go underground. So you have to survive. I don't know. Mm. It was, we had a torch and a gas mask, basically. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say we didn't get to use either. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Actually, so- no, we might have shone the torch through the back of one of the bottles of wine. To check the level. That was that was that that's was how, how that's well we how used the geeky you that's got with your, torch, with your torch. With your torch. And but go on, set the scene for us then. Once yeah, you're well, there. okay. So when you when you finally do go underground, and it was like you know 150 odd steps or something. Um, and you go down the steps. You go. You walk down the steps. Yeah. We went down the steps. We didn't get a ride in the train. Actually, I was I just might, thinking, right, why I might not the write train? A letter of complaint there. Oh. I yeah. really wanted to do that. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Ghost train. When you're underground, feeling slightly disappointed you haven't gone down in the train. Um, it's quite spacious, actually. Quite spacious sort of tunnels and chambers. Quite high ceilings, which I guess they needed when it was a munitions dump. You know, <laughs> you probably need big old tunnels. Um, it's quite cool. Um, it's about 13 degrees, but it's not sort of cold. There's definitely a humid edge down there, 
which you sort of start to notice after a while. There are lots of sort of people in forklifts buzzing around. Uh, apparently about 135 people work there in total. And then there are, of course, you know, stacks upon stacks of wine cases. And, and you just look at these things and it's a roll call of the finest wine names in the world. You know, and one uh, fellow visitor who was going around with described it as like looking inside someone's bank account. <laughs> if you can imagine a bank account expressed in wine. In wine, yeah. in wine. I mean, but just think about it. Amazing. It does sound like ideal conditions for maturing fine wine. I mean, yeah. it's it probably not ideal for me. Bit cold. You wouldn't try. Um, I, I wouldn't be super happy down there. No. But, uh, but, you know, great f- for wine. So, so they have the trains and mm. forklifts to move the wines around. What else happens down there? Well, they've got big fans to keep the air moving. Um, we saw a photography studio. Bizarrely, you know, but actually, you know, as we talked about, photography is becoming more and more important. But that was for taking pictures of the wines and their cases. Uh, and why is that important? Well, it's important if you want to see the condition of your wines or fill levels mm. um, if you're buying or selling. Um, and apparently, there's lots of demand for that service. Apparently, you know, you know, and, and of course, we we found a nice corner to have lunch in. Did you indeed? <laughs> And here's you claiming it was all work. And there was actually, funny enough, and now I mentioned it, there was a, a strange door with with German writing on it. It looked like sort of wartime German writing, which is bizarre. Everyone said, what the hell is that? Apparently they mm. filmed a sequence for, for the guns of Navarone down there. Oh, interesting. Bizarre. Anyway, interesting. Just, uh, anyway go, going back to, to what, what you were up to, you yeah. did you did at least um, in all this work find time to uh, to chat with Vincent O'Brien, as we said, MD of Octavian, mm. who's, who's quite quietly spoken, He's isn't very he? very softly very spoken, soft. actually. Um, but I noticed you made sure to ask him all sorts of interesting and probing questions. Yes. Uh, but one thing to ask you before we before we start why do people pay to store their cases of wine professionally in the first place yeah it's a good area just to just to clarify isn't yeah. it um space is one i guess you know especially if you don't have a big house um ambient conditions are another big one uh you know wine as we've discussed needs the right kind of conditions to mature it needs a constant temperature ideally about 12 to 13 degrees centigrade some humidity Decent air quality, minimal vibrations and light. Um, you know, th- those are all quite specific. Mm. And then, of course, one other thing is that professional wine storage can keep your wine in bond, uh, which means you don't have to pay VAT tax and duty on it. Uh, you only pay that when you take it out of bond to drink. But if you want to sell it on rather than drink it, it's more attractive to sell it in bond people want to buy it in bond and also mm. you then never have to pay the tax on it at all so it's like when when it's an investment so mm. so we're taught we are talking obviously fine wine here the kind yeah. of wine that matures but that can also be sold on as an investment exactly so we're talking not just about fine wine here but also wine investment two, two things that overlap massively yeah. but they're not quite the same, the same things. thing uh, but for both of them you know storage is vital uh, it might not seem the most sexy or compelling topic to some I can see nodding. Uh, But, you know, we could be talking about the most expensive bottle on the planet. But if it hasn't been stored right, you know, it might very well taste like ditch water. In fact, it probably will. You know, and the fine wine market. Not ditch water, but uh, (laughs) not as good as it should. This whole wine investment market has boomed recently. Um, so this topic has become more and more important to focus on and discuss, uh, you know, which is precisely what I did with Vincent on site. And I started by asking him to describe his job. We look after the finest wine collections in the world um, for both merchants and private individuals. We store them underground in an old stone mine uh, in Wiltshire. Which is where we're sitting now. Which we are. <laughs> How many bottles of wine do you store here? Um, at the moment, we've got about 9 million bottles. 
So we're sitting on top of nine million bottles of fine give or, wine. Give or take, a movement every day, but yeah. yeah. Um, there will be um, a reasonable amount of champagnes and whiskies. Whiskies is an area that is growing very much over the last few years. Um, and it's certainly part of an investment portfolio for m- the majority of our customers now. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, if you had to put a rough value in terms of the stock you have here, what would it be? Um, it's in excess of a billion. Um, it is, it's hard to get an accurate figure with everything that's a, and with the ages that we have. We've got over a thousand items that are older than 1900. So getting a value on them is a little bit tricky. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, how do you keep all this stuff safe? With a lot of care. Um, we specialize in fine wine. So the advantage that we have probably over a lot of other warehouses is we can dedicate ourselves to processes and procedures just for this product. Uh, it is an unusual warehousing product because it doesn't come with barcodes. It doesn't fit into the norms that normal warehousing does. Um, packaging is deemed to be part of the product for a lot of our customers as well. So in most warehouses, packaging is there to protect the product. Here we have to protect the packaging and the product. So the level of care that we have to put in is far in excess of, of any other warehouse. But what about security? I mean, I'm thinking security in terms of people breaking in and stealing some of this um, billion pounds worth of stock that you have. We're very lucky. We're in a very remote part of the world. Um, we don't overly advertise Am ourselves. I allowed to reveal where we are? Well, I'm... it's on our website and that, but uh, <laughs> we're so, um, our location is so unassuming, people would drive by and not know we were here. Um, the majority of it is underground. Um so we have very few access points. Um, there's 157 steps to negotiate once you get underground to come back up, which is a demotivating factor for a lot of people. Um, it's a million square feet. We manage risk by ensuring that we don't have too much value in any one place. Mm. So for someone to come and pick the crown jewels, they'd have to travel a long way underground to know exactly where they are then negotiate in the dark, 157 steps back up, going against the man security we have and an alternative CCTV company. So I think we're we're fairly in a good position. <laughs> I, mean, I have heard you described as the Fort Knox of wine, um, and certainly security was quite tight coming in. I certainly found that, which is good to know. And um, we have that part of our culture I get searched rigorously on the way out. I mm. test the security company that I certainly will grade their service to us based on how well they search me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever tested that out and tried to take I've, a bottle? We, we have tested it out really? in many different formats. Yes. So have you been caught? Is it we've taking been, a bottle of wine? We've, we've, we've found that they are a very good security company. Okay. <laughs> You're not going to tell me anymore, are you? I'd love to see uh, footage of that. But anyway. I mean, you mentioned you have some wines pre-1900s. I mean, can I ask you, what is the oldest, rarest bottle? We've got a 1775 um, Madeira. And, you know, the one thing I'd like to get across to people is we're wine storage experts. We're definitely not wine experts. There is a very big differential between the two. Um, We appreciate what we store, but I bow to greater knowledge on the product. (laughs) What what can go wrong here? You know, I mean, obviously lots can go wrong, but what happens, for example, if, if something breaks? Um, 
I firmly believe we're selling trust to our customers because the value we're storing on behalf of them, um, we get asked less questions than, than I would imagine they ask of their bank. And trust has been hard won and, and fought over for many years, but it's easy for us to basically lose that. So with our culture, with our staff, it's all about transparency and trust. You know, we've got a million square feet on the ground with very few clear lines. So we trust, but we also validate. We accept that breakers are going to happen. We hire human beings to handle an organic human product. Um, so it would be foolish of me to say that we never break anything. Mm. But what we do is we ensure to market values. We take care as much as we can. And in the last year, our error rate was 0.001%. So that's even better than a vaccine. <laughs> I wish there are some. What, how on earth do you manage to make it that low? I mean, the fact that the, the accident rate in our household is much higher than that. So well, tell me some tips. One, we don't we don't tell our staff the value of the stock. Um, we believe that our customers' stock can have an emotional value as much as a financial value. Mm. So we want them to treat everything equally. Um, we are looking after something for someone else. So it's that level of care that we want to put in. We we have processes that basically treat wine for what it is. It is a delicate product. We've been doing it for many years, so we know we know certain things from experience and some of it not good um, where we've learned from. And it is about evolving our thoughts and basically understanding what went wrong and how can we make it better. Can you give me an example of, of, of something like that? Um, We've got certain burgundies where some of the packaging is not sufficient to cover the bottles. So you can see the outline of the bottle through the packaging. If you put any weight on that packaging, the bottle will normally break over a period of time. So something like that, you learn from experience. That sounds, I can, I'm wincing as you're telling me that. What do you do? Do you repackage it? Then? We repackage it. We, so we, we either put it into an outer um, or... If something goes wrong, we'll basically we can repack. But ideally, we want to try and keep the original card. So normally, we'll stick it into an outer to protect it. So the the original packaging is fine. But it, but it's one of those things you kind of go, this shouldn't really happen, <laughs> but it does, and uh, and we have to react to it. Now you mentioned insurance there. This is a really important point, isn't it? And you said insurance to market value. So you know, if someone's got something they've kept with you for ten. 20 years, it's gone up in value significantly. You're insuring it to the value, not just of what it was bought for, but what it sells at right now. Can you just explain to us a little bit about insurance, how important <laughs> I know it's a big, big issue. It's it, it's a big issue. But I understand some people aren't offering insurance right now. The, the market is tightening regarding insurance because um, there's been a lot of private individuals now insuring because warehouses have stopped offering it. And We've worked with our, we work with a syndicate on the Lloyds market because of the level that we insure to. We insure to, um, to 450 million each and every loss. We believe it's the highest that's out there. We know we're the only ones who work with a syndicate as far as we're aware and as far as the insurance market has ever let me, (laughs) (laughs) let me be aware. We spend a lot, a lot of time working with them. So every two to three years, I have 14 or 15 underwriters come visit. Um, and we go through all of the handoffs from different elements of the insurance because it's a syndicate, different parts take different risks and stuff like that. So we go through as a point of principle, mm. if something happens here, 
who who's paying out. Um, it's always easy to establish liability when there's no figures around. <laughs> now, you're, you're, I mean, is that included? Is the insurance included in a price? If I was to sort of a case of wine with you, is that included in my price? Or it, extra for it? It, so what we've had to start basically introducing quite recently is because of the values have just gone so high, especially particularly whiskies and that, we've always assumed a certain level of operational risk that mm. would include this level of insurance. But with the values going as high as they are, we just can't find that sustainable. So we say anything over um, £8,000 a bottle, you have the option of of having an uplifted charge for us to insure. Okay. Um, some people balk against it or not. But ultimately, for some of these items, what I'm charging for storage is is far less than they would have to pay for an insurance premium. So really, they're getting storage for free and they're barely paying for the insurance. So you mentioned how much is it? I mean, I know it probably varies, but rough guide, how much does it cost a storage case with you? Um, it's, it's around £20 a case for a year fully insured. So it, it's less than probably parking your car in London for a day and that's not insured. <laughs> um, but that is quite a lot more than you pay with a lot of other merchants. Recently. It is. And I know the true cost of what I do. Um so there is a motivation for merchants to basically offer that. Is that motivation aligned with the person who wants to store with them? We 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 think it's better to have an independent storage account. Um, we put names on all of the cases. Um, we ensure we give we give our customers visibility of the rotation number, so they know what the u- unique identifier is on their case. And I know from from practice. That is not universal out there. Hmm. Um, so there's choices for everything. We believe we do it the best. We we put as much care into it as we can. So there will be differentials. And on that basis, if people were just going to judge it on price, well, I wouldn't have so much moot on a very high value whiskey. <laughs> so tell me about this place where we're sitting right now. You know, how, what is it? Why is it special and, and how did it come to be a wine storage facility? Um, the reason it came to a wine storage facility, we've got a, a an owner who believed the fine wine needed to be treated differently within the general logistics. So he, he saw that fine wine was being sat in warehouses beside detergents and stuff like that back in the day. And he, he saw a gap and uh, he came across Corsham and put the two together and thought, okay, this might be uh this might be a good idea. And when um, you talk about the owner, is this the landowner? It's yeah, and the <clears> owner <throat> of the and the owner of the business, yes. And the owner of the business. Um, Who is sorry. Uh his name is Nigel Jagger, he's our chairman and it's yeah. his it's his family that basically own. Okay. Um so he found this as an opportunity. The what made it unique was when the MOD had it, they put miles and miles of ducting in, which allows us to control the airflow underground. Ducting, sorry, pipes. Pipes that are basically able to us to force air around the mine. So why did they do that? Well, the importance for for fine wine storage for any wine storage really, but it but for fine wine when it's laying down for so long, we're part of the maturation process. It needs constant temperature and it needs humidity. Now, one of our frustrations is lots of places will say they're temperature controlled. 
my car is temperature controlled. I wouldn't want to store wine in it. It's it's a very broad statement to make. We state how the temperature range we're going to store it within, and we can control that because we've got the ducting that basically allows us to force air around. If you've been in cellars in France and stuff like that, I'm sure you'll have a very strong smell of damp and stuff like that. What we're able to do is keep it fresh because we're exchanging the air and we're maintaining that temperature. So we store at 13 degrees plus or minus one. It's because it's a hundred feet below the ground. It's 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 that's the easy part. <laughs> the temperature, the humidity is 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 the bit we have to work hard, and that's where the airflow helps because. Normally, you'd have stagnant areas where humidity would grow and basically will then impact the cases. Um, so by having the airflow, we've got sensors, we've got sensors outside. We're able to know when we need to exchange the airflow. We've got dew points. I could bore you silly about it. I'm sure. <laughs> I, 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 we, we're not going to get into too much detail, but you said you keep humidity between 75 and 85% as ideal. But how do you do that? Let's say, for example, you're low on humidity downstairs in the in, in underground in a key area. There isn't much humidity in the ambient air outside up top. What do you do? The advantage, the challenge we have is actually taking humidity out, not introducing That's it the thing. in. Really, it's to reduce. So humidity. we're in limestone, so it's basically like a giant sponge. It's yeah. constantly basically. So we're we're having to do the opposite actually. Ah, okay. Whereas we've got an above ground warehouse and we've introduced humidity there, where we're we're actually forcing it in. So um, during the hot spell, our temperature and humidity was perfect downstairs. We can, not, we can go without exchanging the air for a good period of time. But if we know there's a period of coming, we basically, we've got years and years of data. Um, we expected certain attributes coming this year because we were being warned about a heat wave and stuff like that. So we got ahead of the curve to manage ourselves and manage the airflow and stuff mm. like that. Um, and touch wood, it, it works. Um, we've got joint fans throughout that basically forces the air through, through the ducting. Um, we've got a large maintenance team that basically is just going around and looking after it. And we've got readers throughout so that we can basically read what, what it is in any given point. But if you need to reduce humidity, it's fans to it will air. be exchanging the air then okay okay and you also talk about fresh air mm -hmm. you've mentioned that you don't want stagnant air again is that just a question of air replenishment it, air replenishment and stuff like that but also i think the advantage that we have we're out in the middle of the countryside so the quality of the air that we're bringing in is quite good too um it's not it's not clogged up with pollution or anything else mm. That's really interesting because obviously wine investment is a big hot topic right now. Lots of people investing, so buying wine to store it to then sell it. At a, and, and, but obviously, the storage, the provenance is absolutely crucial in that mechanism because if you've got a lovely case of wine but you store it terribly, then the quality is not going to be there. But I think if I'm going to be honest, I don't think we as a company feel storage is appreciated within the marketplace at all. Um, we do our job to the levels that we do but even as we started this conversation price is the thing everyone basically judges me on so we're trying to do and be specialists in what we do experts in what we do yet I'm getting valued against people who I would categorically say do not do it with the level that we do so in an investment market where people see value in certain items, I've struggled why they don't see the same value in what we do. Yeah. 
So you would question, you would say people are not valuing the role of good quality storage in wine investment well enough. I, enough. I certainly think there's a lot of room for it to grow. How does this facility rate globally in terms of you know size <laughs> and suitability of storage? You must have some sense of that. You know, is this the biggest, most sophisticated wine storage unit in the world? I'd like to think so. Um, I'd like to think that we put more thought into it than anyone else does. I certainly would say that our stats about error and issues are far in excess of, of what anyone else. And I know some of my customers will probably be there going, maybe disputing what I'm saying, but I am a metric type of person and I do measure and I and my staff will tell <laughs> would gladly tell you that I do hold them to account against metrics as well. I, I don't live in a bubble. I want to know what we can do and what we can improve. Um, but in terms of size, amount of bottles stored in one site, you must be one of the biggest in the world. I believe we are. Okay. How profitable is the business? <laughs> We've talked about prices and um, value. How profitable is it, the business of wine storage in general? I, I think with the level of risks that we are taking on and the responsibility taking on, I think we're getting to the point of, of profitability that we should be at. I think some of our customers would probably say I'm too profitable. But if I'm going to basically ensure and take the level of responsibility that I am taking, developing what we are doing, if you look at it at other markets that are dealing with investment products, the rate that we're charging is, is it's, it still has room to grow. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to be basically increasing my prices because I also know there's an appetite there. But there's a reason why the UK is the cheapest place probably in the world to basically pay for professional wine storage. Um, yet it, the prices have have radically increased. So if I look at what we were charging per the average value of case in 2005 against what we're charging against the average value of case today, it's a 35% deduction in value. So our customers are getting that much better value because our, our charging has not kept up with the value increases in and 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 I'm insuring it along the way as well. So it's not like it's just storage. I'm insuring these values as along the way. And is business growing? Is I mean, is there a finite amount of business <laughs> in this sector? Case wise, it's growing, but bottle wise, it's reducing a little bit because if you just think naturally, it's twelve packs who are getting older, so they're migrating out. What's coming in because of the values are smaller pack sizes. They're sixes, threes, ones. We do then have an awful lot of gift packs, which are can be any size. Um, and the oddity within storage as well is we charge based on literage rather than on size. When we sell space, it's a little bit of an odd one. <laughs> I mean, how do you keep track of who owns what? Um, do you have one pile for one person? I assume that's not... No. That's not <laughs> no. So you must have very clever systems. Um, to be fair, they're, they're normal. That bit is fairly standard within any warehousing. Every product's got a unique identifier, either a rotation number or the customer's name on it. Um, and that always kind of surprises me that people don't want their, don't have their names on cases. I'd always want to have my name on my case. Um, and I think there's an element where people probably believe that happens everywhere, and it doesn't. Um, but we also encourage our customers to come in and 
and get a feel for what we do to get a bit of context of what we do, how we do things and and how well we look after their their stock. So that's interesting. So obviously you store for a lot of merchants, a lot of businesses, but you do offer a storage service for private individuals. If yep. I buy a case and I want to store with you, I can come and do that with you. Yep. And so I can come and visit my case, can I? I can come and yeah, see we, what, what's we, going on. We encourage People it. We get, we, get, we get a regular amount of visitors. Um, before COVID, it was getting to be probably a visit once every two Two or three times a week, probably, it was getting to. It mm. kind of diminished off and it's starting now to build up again. Um, and, yeah, we encourage it. We like people to understand and to meet them and basically and give them the level of reassurance that, you know, we are doing our job and we're looking after their, their stock for them. Now, you say that not all wine storage facilities are equal. What should people look out for as worrying signs in a bad storage facility? Temperature, humidity is key to look after your product. So... It would be asking questions about that. Um, a lot of, as I said, a lot of places will talk about temperature controlled. What What does that mean? I, that would be the first question I'd always ask. What are they insuring to? What's their security? You know, visit the place if you can. Um, you're putting an awful lot of trust into someone's care. Um, if if they're open and transparent then, and they can answer those questions, you're, you're probably onto a good choice. And final question. What are your plans for the future? To continually look at how we can improve, but also I'd like to become a better voice within the industry to kind of bridge the gap between the consumer and the producer. But the lack of communication, it just feels we're this intermediary that could help bridge some of that gap, but no one's talking to us to do that. It strikes me that you want to be part of this wine conversation more than you currently are between people who buy wine, people who make the wine and people who sell the wine. I'd like to think we've got a, a different perspective because ultimately I'm not here to buy and sell wine. I just want to do a good service for the people who want to enjoy it. Well, it's been lovely coming here to talk to you today. Uh, Vincent, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Nine million bottles, over a billion pounds worth. That is a lot of responsibility. It is, isn't it? It is. Apparently one whiskey bottle, Vincent was telling us, uh, that, that they stored there sold for 1.2 million recently. One bottle? One bottle. Um, now, wow. apparently that wasn't stacked on a pallet with lots of other stuff. Which surprise, is, surprise. Which is more the norm. You know, it had to, it had its own home in the cellar. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> surprised. And apparently they'd had quite a few bottles of whiskey coming in the days before I visited, you know, worth you know, between forty and £50,000. <gasps> it's slightly insane, isn't it? You, you, can, you can really understand why insurance is so important, can't you? Yeah, it's vital to check insurance. Again, maybe not the sexiest topic, but really, really important here, mm. you know. Wherever you store your wine or, or your whiskey, you know, as Vincent said, check the insurance. Um, so, you know, the key thing is, as we said, with storing fine wine over long periods is that it needs constant, relatively low temperature, humidity, decent air quality, no vibrations or bright lights, and ideally, minimal risk of breakage. So, storing it nowhere near you, basically. True, true. <laughs> but all of that... And insurance, and obviously. Insurance um, but Susie Barry's handling your wine. Get some insurance. <laughs> get some, get the best insurance you can get. But interesting too, he said that you could go, I, I like this bit, you can go and visit your wines at Octavian. Mm. I didn't know that. And yeah. they actually encourage it. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Um, That's fascinating. I mean, I guess it? it's a good way of doing your due diligence, isn't it? Mm. You know, if you're storing valuable or precious bottles anywhere, it makes sense to go and check these things. Mm. And, and you can have a fun day out 
at the same time too. As you know, uh, I'm not. I'm not sure everybody would get quite the same wines that you did, though. Maybe not. Um, uh, but the, but there are. You know, there are a couple of things to discuss from what Vincent said. Mm. First off, costs. Now, clearly yeah. you touched a nerve there. Vincent mm. perhaps doesn't feel that good wine storage is valued as it mm. should be. And I mean that in all senses of the word. Mm. But what's the context of wine storage costs? Yeah, good point. Um, you know, if you're taking value in a monetary sense, and I see your, your multiple meanings there. You know, if you want to store your wine with Octavian as a private individual customer, Prices start at £23.76 per case per year. That's including VAT. Very specific. And they go down to about £20.77 if you have over 100 cases. Wow. Um, there's a minimal, and those are both including VAT, there's a minimal and minimum annual charge of £100. And that's, you know, per case is per 1 to 12 of the same bottles packed together. And that those prices include insurance, uh, personal labelling on the case, online account and various other things as well. Okay, so what about other storage options then? Yeah, it, it does tend to be cheaper elsewhere, if I'm honest. You know, if you store your wine via a wine merchant, um, so for example, someone you're buying it through, mm. they tend to charge between 9 and £20 from what I can find out. You know, though, though most tend to be 10 to 12 or maybe a tiny bit more uh, per, case per case per year. Okay. Um, and funny enough, your case could end up in Octavian, if that merchant uses them as their storage facility, yeah, or being yeah. slightly cheaper. But but Vincent argues, doesn't he, that you get a better service if you store with them privately rather than through a merchant. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And also that they're also he says their fees haven't actually gone up nearly as much as wine valuations or prices have gone up. Yeah, that was so an interesting. That's one, his wasn't argument. It? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure raising wine storage fees in line with growing wine valuations wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> Certainly, no. be feasible, you know. Not really. Uh, I mean, it's still a case point, of wine. It's well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe because anyway, insurance and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But but it, but it does give you a, an idea of why the wine investment market is booming, doesn't mm, it? Mm, with now, yeah, yeah, talking yeah. of wine investment, uh, I wanted to pick up on something else. He he talked about packaging a bit, which can be important for investment grade wine, can't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But isn't it? Difficult to keep that pristine when when it's stored underground in a humid environment, and equally, actually, and conversely, if you like, you can store a wine really badly, and it's still going to look great, or could it's, still look great. It's a really good point, and we did discuss this. You know, Vincent said he, he's a firm believer in looking after the product, not the packaging, uh, which is what we'd argue is clearly the most important issue too. You know, from a wine lover's point of view, but there is kind of um, an inherent conundrum in storing investment grade wine you know because the customer you get the sense on one hand wants the wine to be in the wine itself to be in perfect condition of course it goes without saying but in order to have that you need, you need it to be stored in a humid environment but on the other hand they also quite often as far as I understand demand that the packaging is also in pristine condition you know to help sell the stuff but that's not always the case after it's been stored you know for a number of years underground no as anyone no. who's Try no. knows. Well, no, and when we've talked to like we, we've talked to a number of merchants who've mentioned this issue. Um, it, it can be hard to control humidity in a facility like mm. this, where mm. inevitably you'll get variations in conditions. You know, some pockets of high humidity, for mm. example. Mm. Um, but you know, p- people want their wine to look good as well as be in good yeah. condition, as yeah. we said. So, yeah. Yeah. how yeah. do you how do you manage I, you know, it? 
I did also think when I was there that it must be hard, you know, getting to people's wines when so much wine is stored in a place like that underground, yeah. which just must make things time consuming to get at and mm. get out. Mm, um, yeah. You know. Mm. And, have we, and as we've said, you know, the demand for photography is also going through the roof at the moment. Yeah. You know, one merchant we talked to said it's gone from, I think it was a few hundred photos to thousands a month. Yeah, I think Vincent said they were taking something like 10,000 images of cases and bottles a month. Now. And that's specifically so people can check what they're buying or selling again maybe a sign of the growth in wine investment recently Mm, i think so but but we spoke to several wine merchants didn't we just to get another perspective on this whole issue of wine storage and and some merchants we spoke to are moving for example to their own facilities or specially designed units within other storage facilities for greater control and accessibility of over their their own customers stock Mm. as the market changes and and evolves yeah that's a really important point the market is changing and evolving particularly at the moment Um, Mm. there's also a, a bigger point here one that that Vincent made, you know, he describes wine as a passion industry, you know, and and he's right. Uh, You know, wine can be quite traditional and there's lots of kind of associated romance, I guess you could say. Um, But he was clearly desperate for wine to modernise a bit, you know, sort of become more transparent and and accountable in its dealings. You know, wine will always be bought and sold, but but provenance is really crucial in the fine wine market. Um, So that should include the place or places where it's stored. And, and having a very clear, easily accessible paper trail, you know, standardised barcodes would help, he said. But, you know, whatever really it takes to ensure wine is kept properly and accountably. Which is why he said wine storage should be talked about more, be more involved in the conversation. Is. Which is exactly what we're doing here. Here we are. Isn't it? So to recap briefly, we've explored the importance of wine storage and gone behind the scenes at Octavian's Wine Cellars in Corsham, this Fort Knox of wine in a former mine. Uh, you've grilled Octavian's MD Vincent O'Brien. Now it feels like time we probably need to talk about actual wine rather than just storage mm, mm. but but that actual wine had been stored properly you see there's the link it's all work you know. <laughs> well, your accusations earlier were calumny i uh, can't believe you're no, going to no, no, tie I, this to work i can't no. i can't lie no no you know, no, no we no, were no, treated no. to some serious wine treats but you know before, on this particular day we're, we're talking aren't we this on, this day on this particular day when 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 i visited uh but before we get into the wine treats uh, i wanted to share a little audio treat is it you Perhaps. That that makes it sound very conceited. It's me, but it's me, um, three sheets to the wind, uh, Mm. after this most epic tasting and lunch that we had underground in Octavian Cellars. I did debate whether to share this, but um, I've been persuaded. Let's put it that way. You like oversharing, don't you? We're all about oversharing here. We all know that. Um, Now, in this clip, I am clearly talking a lot of nonsense, but just please just go with me on this. Um, I'm clearly also forgetting my mic etiquette. Hence the poor sound. I'll stop with the apologies now. But here we go for the comedy value. So I am currently 100 feet under the Wiltshire turf. And we have just enjoyed the most amazing lunch featuring some stunning wines. And I have to say that the one that has made the biggest impression on me was the Chateau Cheval Blanc 1949, a piece of history really Um, and it tasted beautiful just the most uplifting, elegant ethereal wine that is the kind of wine that just makes you think about wine in a slightly different way, it makes you 
have a fantastic connection to the people around you because you're sharing it all, this magical experience at the same time. And it's just delicious and life-affirming. One of those unbelievable wine experiences. Um, and it's quite fascinating to think it can happen 100 feet underground in Wiltshire, but where we are surrounded by billions of pounds, millions of bottles worth of aging fine wine. What a place, what a thought, what a notion. Um, and this issue of wine storage, of storing wine properly to age well and become these incredible, memorable, life-affirming bottles of the future, that's quite a thought. I may be quizzing you about those fantastic connections to the people around you a bit later. I'm, uh, um, I'm, 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 my lips are sealed. Mm, I bet well, they Sometimes. weren't. Shame, shame they weren't then, they isn't weren't. it, really, frankly? Anyway, oh, before we all turn green with envy as you describe these extraordinary wines, and mm-hmm. um, in all seriousness, where did they come from? I mean, for example, the Cheval Blanc 1949, you don't normally mm. just find that lurking in a dusty corner when you're looking for something to have with your lunch, do you? No, no, I think you made me lose my voice there, actually. But um, <clears throat> no, I did ask Vincent about this, and apparently he has a, a special collection <laughs> of old and rare wines. That's what I needed to finish the sentence with, wasn't it? Um, so if they do ever break something irreplaceable, uh, something very old and rare, which they can't source on the open market, he's got a stash of equally rare and special wines that you can offer by way of replacement. So this is one of those, as far as I'm concerned. Genius, I love it. Uh, and you got to enjoy the benefits of Vincent's <clears throat> cunning strategy. Uh, indeed, mm. indeed. You know, it's quite Not funny because at one point during this, this is obviously a magnificent tasting. Vincent sort of hovered up and, and he asked me about the wines and I, and I started sort of rhapsodising about how amazing they were, at which point he chipped in and he said in that lovely way, as he said, um, yeah, there's not much to this winemaking business, is there? It's just squashing grapes, really. It's all about the storage. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. Um, go on then. So, so what about this mm. Cheval Blanc 1949? Tell us. Apparently the 1947... Uh, is the legendary one. Uh, but 1949 was a good vintage too. And, and this bottle was mind-blowing. But you're not usually, and I have to mention this, you are not usually a big fan of Cheval Blanc, are you? Well, Let's be I honest. so regularly. You do get to taste it. Within the context of sort of some of the world's nicest wines or yeah, best indeed, wines, yeah. finest wines that we we've, managed, sound, we've been lucky we enough to taste. We don't want to sound too pretentious here, but we no. do get to taste it quite a bit. You, well, I've, you've I've tasted never, it, yeah. never, never been a massive fan. It's absolutely true. Mm. And I remember, you know, when you came back after having one lunch and you'd had, what, was it the 1966? 1966, it was very, that was Did you have another one as well? Was great. That, 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 was that, that was the one, yeah, okay. yeah. It was just phenomenal. And you were going crazy about it and I was like, you know, I just don't get it. I don't see it. I'm sorry. I've never seen it. You know, I suppose... The most vintages that I've tried, I've tasted young, you know. Which is what um, we normally do. We taste yeah. the maybe on Prima kind of, yeah. I mean, I have tasted some with a bit of age, but even then it's never really done it for me. Mm. So, you know, I tend to either like the kind of structure and tannins and complexity of Cabernet Sauvignon, left bank Bordeaux, uh, or the elegance of Burgundy, or maybe even, you know, the kind of really brilliant Loire Cabernet Francs. But, you know, Cheval Blanc, like a lot of right bank Bordeaux, I'm going to go on the record and say this, actually. I'm going to say this out loud. Right bank Bordeaux really just tends to leave me a bit cold. And I'm going to duck my head and put on my tin hat at that point. But clearly not this one. Here we go. This is what Mm. might save me. Exactly. Mm. It finally made sense. 
you know, for example, I'd never like PX Sherry, that really sweet raisiny sherry. It's a bit different to Cheval Blanc though, isn't it? Just bear with me. Until I had a 1914. And that just took 100 years yeah. for it to soften and mellow and actually become it, a bit savoury as well as sweet. I have to say, you do tend to let your wines a bit older than I do anyway, because Maybe, um, you often say, actually. it's too young, it's too Maybe. young. And I think, Maybe. well, not for me. But anyway, this, this, yeah. this finally, did, made, finally sense. made sense. Cheval Blanc made sense to me. So yeah. after, what, 70 plus years... It wow. was just so elegant. But what, what it was about it was it was absolutely sort of Burgundian, mm. if you can describe it in that way, if, if mm. the border label forgive me for that. It was earthy and sappy and forest floury. It was, yes, there was the, sort of the tobacco and cedar and fine, firm tannin you'd expect of Bordeaux. It was still very Bordeaux, but it had a kind of warming spice and a sort of haunting lift and, and lightness to it. It was, it was so complex. It was so persistent. It Definitely a wine that affects you on an emotional level, as you can probably tell. Mm. You know, you can't, mm. it's one of those wines you just can't remain unmoved mm. when, when you're presented with it, when you experience it, mm. when you taste it. No one there was unmoved. We were all thoroughly moved. <laughs> that sounds weird. I'm going to move on. But it was just so, I don't know, it was so alive. It was vibrant. It was just a great moment in my wine life. You know, undoubtedly one of the very best Bordeaux I've ever drunk. And one of the one of the very best wine experiences I've ever had. Or probably ever will, frankly. Maybe. And, and you did try it, did, didn't you, alongside the 1998, so a much younger version. Yeah, but 1998 obviously is a legendary vintage, mm. especially on the right bank. Um, and that wine was really impressive. Um, but yeah, I'm afraid it didn't hold a candle to the 49. Uh, and it was maybe a little bit like that with the Moutons as well, the, the Chateau Mouton Rothschild. We had, we had the 1996 and the 1986, you know, both lovely age-worthy vintages. Quite classical in style, I suppose, aren't they both? Cooler years. And, you know, impressive, but they just paled after being served after the Cheval Blanc, which was the right order to serve them in, I guess. But, yeah, uh, they didn't really stand a chance. Mm. And it's strange because Mouton is, you know, as we know, often quite a showboat of a first growth, isn't it? It's quite opulent and exotic in style by nature. But these were wines that were just a bit taut and a bit tight. I mean, I suppose you could argue that was due to good storage, you know, they're ageing slowly, but mm. they didn't really I mean, shine. It was also probably, dare I say it, just a bit cool down there to be serving the reds, mm. wasn't it? I mean, 13 degrees. Yeah, actually, now you say it, yeah, it, it probably Particularly was Particularly those, those wines. Yeah, yeah, that may well have had something to do with that, actually, especially with the heavier reds. The slightly the heavier Cabernet, ones, yeah. Cabernet-based, yeah. yeah, that's true. Because we did have other reds that that we tasted but that were that were impressive, but thinking about it, they were also in that lighter style, too, I guess, which might suit serving a bit. So cold. go on, go on, tell us. All right, which sorry, ones? so I'm dropping the hints. Which I'm just, ones? So the Domaine Fourier, Clos Saint-Jacques oh. 2005, was breathtaking. Um, unreal mm. uh, it was just so poised and elegant and hugely complex it just you know sang it was savory and sappy and vibrant it's exactly what you want from burgundy a combination of lightness and grace with you know intensity and, and sort of urgency and it really did show up the the Druana Rose Latricière Chambertin also 2005 which was more a kind of bodybuilder of a wine really sort of dark and muscular and yeah you know it might soften over time but you got the sense it was just trying too hard and you had it against this wonderful example of something that was just light and sprightly but so magical at the same time. I'm going to go on the flip side now and try to stop us all feeling this massive FOMO um, <laughs> because you did have a bit of a disappointment in all of this, didn't you? Well, yeah. Please tell us there was some disappointment Th- um, was. on the white burgundy front, wasn't it? There was, yeah. The Comte yeah. Lafont, Merceau Genevrier 2004 was absolutely knackered. 
Uh, it was oxidised. <laughs> As were you by the end you know, of the day, I well, have no I, doubt. I, <laughs> it was a competition between me and You were oxidised, if you were knackered. Which one was more knackered? Um, I'd heard that they'd had, what we discussed at the lunch actually, that, that Cornelfort had had Premox issues of wines oxidising before their time, especially with the 2002... So premature oxidation. Vintage, exactly. And I know 2004 wasn't a great vintage. But even so, this was, you know, this was pretty dead. And it was such a shame for a legendary producer. I really haven't tasted very much of their wines, if any. The old one, I think. But the Koch Jury, uh, White Burgundy, same vineyard, same appellation, Merceau Genevieve, uh, but from 2010 was, yeah, spot on. Sorry, back to FOMO here. Toasty, <laughs> nutty, reductive, struck match, you know. Being really picky, I'd have loved a bit more intensity on the palate, uh, especially what I imagine the price is, but, mm. you know, it was, mm. it was pretty special. I mean, but even at crazy prices, we all, all still want value for money in the context, don't we? You still um, want to be blown away, don't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do, if, you, if you're spending a lot of money. Mm. Um, so, go on. what about the fizz? Yeah, okay. We haven't, we haven't yeah, just about to finish that. off, we, we, so we got to compare Dom Perignon 1996 with Krug 1996. Uh, so, 96, as many of you will know, was a vintage where lots of really opulent, showy, flashy styles of champagne were made. And it was interesting because the DP was, you know, it was solid, it was good, it was very correct, it was relatively complex, but it just wasn't thrilling. Um, the Krug <laughs> was a total contrast. It was rich. It was hedonistic. It was hugely complex, you know, tobacco, roasted peach, white chocolate. I mean, it was just, but, you know, underneath it all, there was this incredible, vivacious, grounding, sort of tense acidity and minerality right at its core, almost a sort of salty saline finish as well. Maybe a bit tarty, maybe a bit showy, but hell, I don't care. That, that wow. You know, stunning, stunning. So, so I'm, I'm going to guess that if you were going to pick your top three wines of the day, it's probably there, isn't it? That one. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. So, top three, yeah, tough, but we're going to go with obviously Cheval 49 first, uh, Krug 96 second. Um, then I think the Fourier Clos Saint Jacques 2005 third. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, there thank we you. My we pleasure. All, we all officially hate you now. Um, yes. but, it, but at least it does explain why you were slurring slightly on the audio. <laughs> It was just going very slow, wasn't I, to check that I said the words in the right order. Um, anyway, I still haven't really got over the experience, to be honest. As you can probably tell, mm, still a bit mm, I don't think any of us has. But, you know, let's leave the hate to one side just for the moment. Mm. You know, um, I hope you guys have enjoyed nosing around the Fort Knox of wine with us in this episode. Um, we've learned a lot along the way. Uh, it was fascinating to hear from Octavian MD Vincent O'Brien and talk about the importance of storage for fine wine. Uh, it was also great to see this sort of amazing place to store fine wines on a long-term basis and, and talk through some truly special bottles. Uh, and I can personally attest that even the finest security systems in the world can't detect vast quantities of fine wine when it's sloshing around my stomach. And that's why they let me out. Did we need that? That's, that's that the only way. That's the way to get it out. Oversharing. No, don't. Anyway, if you want to listen to a related topic, mm. uh, we did do a pod a while back entitled titled Build a Wine Collection at Home. That was Series 2, Episode 12. The strap line for that one was Delicious Clutter, Neatly Done. Yeah, um, yeah. But we did touch on professional wine storage a bit there as well, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, you could also listen to our episode on investing in wine, Series 3, Episode 9. There's some intriguing stuff about wine storage in there too. Yeah, but thank you for joining us, uh, whether you're a new or an existing listener. We really appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, do get in touch if you'd like to. Details of how to do so are in the show notes or on our website, susieandpeter.com. In the meantime, cheers to you. Cheers.